Somebody says, oh, that embryo is different from us. And my answer is, so is he different from us in ways that justify intentionally killing him? That's the question our critics need to answer. Merely pointing out a difference doesn't prove anything. Do you ever wish you had the words to better refute the pro-abortion argument? Would it be helpful to know how to make the pro-life defense in conversation? And you're going to enjoy today's episode of Dear Jane. Hi, I'm Scott Baker. The Life Training Institute exists to help people talk about being pro-life. Scott Klusendorf is the president of the Life Training Institute and joins us today here on Dear Jane. Scott, what are some of the basic tenets of making the pro-life argument compelling? Keep the main thing the main thing. So let's give you the three most important words in pro-life apologetics. And your listeners are going to want to write these down. They're very important. Three key words, syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. Now, some people might be thinking, Scott, what on earth are we talking about here? This is getting too deep. Am I in some PhD program? No. A syllogism is simply a couple of statements followed by a conclusion, two premises and a conclusion. So, for example, Socrates is a man, premise one, premise two, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. Very simple, logical way of of stating a formal argument. Pro-lifers have a syllogism, and if we don't stick to it like glue, the people we're talking to will constantly change the subject on us and bring up all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the argument that we're making. So it's essential we state our argument formally to make clear what it is we are saying. So the pro-life argument is simply this. Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Premise two, Abortion intentionally kills innocent human beings. Conclusion, therefore, abortion is wrong. Now, Scott, there's only two ways you can beat that argument, really three. One, you can show that the conclusion does not follow, meaning the argument isn't valid. Or two, you can show that one or more of the premises is false, meaning the argument is unsound. Or I suppose you could point out that the terms are used unclearly. Outside of that, the argument stands. It won't do any good for our critics to say, well, you're a man, you have no right to speak. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not a man. It does not change the value of my argument. You have to refute it by showing it's invalid or unsound. It's not going to work to call me names. It won't work to say, well, that's just a religious argument. Again, arguments are sound or unsound, valid or invalid. Calling an argument religious is a dodge, not a refutation. And what we have to do is keep bringing people back to the essential argument that we're making. All right, let's let's practice here because I, I like what you're saying and it makes a lot of sense. But let's let's practice a little bit. So it's wrong to kill human beings. Abortion <laughs> wrong to kill innocent human beings. Intentionally kill innocent human. Intentionally, beings. all right. Abortion kills a human being, therefore an abortion is wrong. So abortion intentionally I'm, kills an innocent human being, therefore it's wrong. Yes. All right. So I'm going to I'm trying to put my I'm trying to think with half my brain tied behind my back. So I'm trying to think like an abortionist. So so bear with me. So what I'm going to say in a counter argument is that um well I'm not killing a human being, I'm killing a clump of cells. So it doesn't work. Okay. Well What is the difference between a human being and a clump of cells? If you pinch the back of your hand right now, Scott, you will send a couple of hundred somatic cells hurling to their demise on the desk in front of you. Each one of those cells individually contains your entire DNA. 
did you just commit mass murder? And of course, the answer is no, because these cells on the back of your hand are merely part of a larger human being, you. They are not distinct whole living organisms the way you were when you were an embryo, the way I was when I was an embryo. In other words, the objection is confusing parts with holes. These cells are merely part of a larger human entity. You as an embryo were already a distinct whole human being, even though you had yet to grow and mature. Something tells me you've heard that before. So you're, you were pretty much ready for, for that. Uh, I've heard a that. few things in my career, yes. Yeah. How long have you been doing this? 32 years. What got you into it? You know, I had always been pro-life, Scott, but uh, in in November of 1990, a local pregnancy center director in Glendale, California, really began bugging me to get more involved. And she said, I want you to come to a pastor's breakfast we're doing for all the pastors in the Southern Cal area and would love to have you come here as speaker. You'll like him. He's going to give a talk on pro-life. And we've invited hundreds of pastors well, I showed up that Saturday morning and there was me and four other pastors and their wives. And that was it. Despite being a large invitation, only a handful of us showed up. But thankfully, the speaker, Greg Cunningham, a former member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives and former Reagan department lawyer, gave a very compelling pro-life talk. And I thought, I like this guy. He doesn't hurt the brain to listen to. I had heard pro-lifers who, quite frankly, did hurt the brain to listen to. And I didn't want any part of that. Well, here was a guy who was intelligent, a lawyer, and he put his case forward the way a lawyer would in a court of law. But that's not what ultimately disrupted my entire life's trajectory. What disrupted the course of my life was he showed an eight-minute video depicting abortion. I had never seen abortion. And I sat there and saw that and thought, my, oh, my. I'm no different than the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side of the road. They said they they might have felt pity, but they didn't act like they felt pity. And Jesus said, that's not enough. And that morning, I think everything changed for me. I knew I had to make a career change. So six months later, with the blessing of my church, I assigned my associate pastor's position and, and uh, began looking at how can I equip pro-lifers to make a case for life in this current culture. So is your background in the ministry then? I have an English degree from UCLA as academics and then a graduate degree in Christian apologetics from Biola. And uh, yes, I before I became a pro-life apologist 32 years ago, for five years, I was an associate minister. So the Life Training Institute, um, who are you trying to train? Is it is it just... Uh, people in the clergy or who can access and who can benefit from Christian lay people and students specifically. We are aiming our message at equipping Christians to make a case for life. And that makes sense because so often, as you referenced before, it is frequently dismissed as, well, you're just, you just, this is your religious beliefs and don't force your religious beliefs on me. What's, what's your retort to that? Uh, Well, first of all, are you saying I'm wrong to do that? If so, why are you forcing your views on me? That sword cuts two ways. But beside that, again, my argument that I laid out that it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings, abortion does that, therefore it's wrong, is either valid or invalid, sound or unsound. Calling an argument religious is a character, or I should say a category, category, or like asking how tall is the number three? 
you've got to do the hard work of refuting the argument. And the person who throws that comeback at you has not done the hard work of refuting your argument. You know, I, I guess those who knows, know me will, um, they would probably call me somewhat skeptical or cynical by, by nature. Um, you know, one of the problems I see with your argument is you rely a lot on logic. And there seems to be a lot less of that around these days. Uh, you know, it's more about who can talk the loudest, who can scream the loudest, that sort of thing. Um, how do you over in this cancel culture? How do you th thrive? I just look at people and say, you're ugly and you're disgusting. And that's it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, that You make a very good point, Scott. And that is this that sometimes we have to change how people feel about something before we can change how they think and ultimately behave on, on something. Abortion is one of those examples. Unless you change how people feel about abortion at the intuitive level, it can be difficult to change how they think and ultimately behave. So this is why when we give pro-life apologetics presentations, we use abortion imagery. It is gruesome to look at, but it changes how people feel about the issue as a predicate to changing how they think and behave. And it's not that we use pictures in place of good arguments. We use pictures as valuable adjuncts to good arguments, much the same way anybody lecturing about history like a Victor Davis Hansen would, uh, and they talk about the Nazi death camps. They're gonna show imagery of bodies stacked like cordwood in these camps, not to manipulate people, but to give them accurate information about it. You can't understand the horror of those death camps by words alone, the way you can when you see the actual imagery. And you know what, your listeners, all of whom are listening, all of those listening to you today have paid money to go watch gruesome imagery on the screen. They went and saw movies like Schindler's List, The Passion of the Christ, um, Hacksaw Ridge, and the list goes on and on. Movies that they paid money to watch, even though they were gruesome. Why did they do that? For the same reason you and I did. Because we understand that those images, though gruesome, convey essential truths that words alone are powerless to convey. What about age appropriateness when it comes to some of those images? Well, my first response is to say any student that is old enough by law to get an abortion without parental consent, which is true in many states, is certainly old enough to view the consequences of that decision. But I generally say as a, a, a guideline, eighth grade and up are perfectly old enough to view this. They're watching stuff way more gruesome on TV and on the internet than what I'm showing them. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's true. Now, you make the case that um, a pro-life argument can be made in one minute or less. Is that yeah. basically laying out the syllogism that you described? Well, it goes like this. Suppose you have an Aunt Betty Scott that visits you at Thanksgiving. She's not a Christian. She's not a believer. She's not pro-life. And she's kind of tolerating you being there. And she says to you between bites of turkey and stuffing, hey, why are you pro-life? And she's expecting you to give some kind of citation of scripture that she can easily brush off. Instead, what you're going to say in a minute or less is the following. Aunt Betty, I'm pro-life because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And the science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, you were a distinct living and whole human being. 
you weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and develop. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could snuff you out then, but not now. Now, I did that in under 50 seconds. But notice I didn't cite Bible verses, but did I communicate a biblical worldview? Of course. Right. And that's our job. And that would answer my next question of, you know, before, for example, one of the guests we've had on this podcast, um, uh, our groups who are atheists, but pro-life, secular, pro-life, that sort of thing. They're not faith-based. Yes. Your argument still works. Your, your example still works for them. Yes, it does. And by the way, I've worked with that group. I know the folks at Secular Pro-Life, and I'm glad to have their help saving innocent lives, and I'll work with them. Now, I do think, as maybe you do as well, that although they can recognize moral truth, they're going to have difficulty grounding it within a naturalistic worldview. How on naturalism do you get from is to ought? You know, it's one thing to recognize moral truths. It's quite another to say why we ought to be obliged to follow them. And I think atheism in a universe that came from nothing and was caused by nothing, it's very difficult to come up with objective truths that we are uh, beholden to fulfill. This is with Scott Klusendorf, the president of the Life Training Institute. We're going to take a break. When we come back here on Dear Jane, I want to talk a little bit about what we get wrong as a pro-life movement when we're trying to make this argument. We'll do it when we come back here on Dear Jane. Are you a pregnancy center or pro-life organization that wants to grow your life-saving mission in a way that effectively reaches women who need help? At Choose Life Promo, our ultimate goal is to help organizations empower women to choose life. We take our design and marketing expertise to the next level, creating apparel, videos, and other items that are eye-catching and attractive ripe with accurate information specifically for women that need support and spread awareness about your pregnancy center to donors and potential supporters at choose life promo our mission is to impact our culture to choose life through communication strategies grounded in both research and biblical values we want to give you promotional items that inspire donations and also educate the abortion-minded woman about your pregnancy center so she can receive the care and support she needs. Saving lives is always in style. Learn more at ChooseLifePromo.com. And we're back here on Dear Jane, visiting with Scott Klusendorf, who is the president of the Life Training Institute. We're talking about pro-life apologetics, and that is how to make the argument, uh, the pro-life case in conversation, how to defend your beliefs, that sort of thing. And Scott's given us some great tools to use so far. I like the way you put it before, Scott. You talked about how, I'm trying to remember exactly how it was painful to listen to some pro-lifers. Um and, and it can be uh, still to this day. What, what do we generally get wrong when, we're, when you hear people trying to make the pro-life argument? Well, there's really a couple of things we do wrong. The first is we use what we call the Beethoven argument. 
And this happens all the time. I'll be out speaking somewhere and somebody will come up to me and say, I'm really shocked you didn't use the most powerful pro-life argument you could have used. Oh, well, what is that? And they'll say, why didn't you mention that if Beethoven's mother had aborted him, we would have never had all that great music? Or why didn't you mention that we've probably aborted the doctor who might have cured cancer or AIDS or COVID? That's not a pro-life argument. The pro-life argument is not that abortion is wrong because it kills gifted people. It's that abortion is wrong because it intentionally kills an innocent human being, regardless of his gifting. In other words, we treat all human beings as equally valuable. We're not making an argument that abortion is wrong because it kills somebody like Steve Jobs. We're saying it's wrong even if it kills a homeless man. So we've got to be careful that we make the right argument here. And that Beethoven argument is a big one where people go astray. Another one that they, they mess up on is I think they misuse scripture. Now, this one's going to surprise a few of your listeners, but I don't think we should be using Psalm 139 as our primary biblical case against abortion. Psalm 139, I was fearfully in, knit together in my mother's womb. We all know the passage. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. But here's the problem. A smart critic will say, oh, you want to take that literally, do you? Well, what about a few verses later when that same psalmist talks about having communion with God at the bottom of the sea? Are you going to take that literally? Uh, and that is a, a question we have to be prepared to answer. So here's the biblical case we should be making. Scripture teaches that all human beings have value because they bear the image of God. Genesis 1 teaches that in the Old Covenant. James 3 teaches it in the New. Premise two, because humans bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood, meaning the intentional killing of an innocent human being, is strictly forbidden. Exodus 23, 7 teaches that. Proverbs 6 teaches that. Matthew 5 teaches that. Let's take those two premises. It's all humans have value because they bear the image of God. And because they bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. That leaves us with only one question we need to answer are the unborn members of the human family? If so, they too are image bearers, and they too should not have their blood shed without justification. That's how we ought to make our biblical case. All humans have value because they bear the image of God. Because they bear the image of God, shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. The human are unborn from fertilization. Therefore, they too are image bearers. Therefore, their blood should not be shed unjustly either. That's a Loctite case, in my view. Hey, and I see it would, it would be to a believer, certainly, even an right. image bearer of God. Um, but what about to the non-believer? To the non-believer, I'm going to make a very simple argument. The unborn are human from conception, and I'm going to use the science of embryology to prove that. And then I'm going to argue philosophically that there's no essential difference between you, Scott, the adult, and you, the embryo, that would justify killing you back then. There are differences, but those differences don't matter. They're not relevant. And what, what we tend to do as Christians is assume the burden of proof all the time. Somebody says, oh, that embryo is different from us. And my answer is, so is he different from us in ways that justify intentionally killing him? That's the question our critics need to answer. Merely pointing out a difference doesn't prove anything. Our critic needs to show why that difference is relevant such that we can say you had no right to life then, but you do now. And if you look at you, the embryo, and you, the adult, 
you'll notice that there are essentially four differences, none of which matter. There's a difference of size. You were smaller as an embryo. Uh, there's a difference of level of development. You were less developed as an embryo. There's a difference of environment. You were in the womb, now you're out. And there's a difference of degree of dependency. You depended on your mother then, you don't anymore. You can use the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D, as a reminder of these differences. And what I do then is point out how none of those differences matter. Size, you were smaller as an embryo. So what? Men are generally larger than women. Do they deserve more rights than women simply because they tend to be larger? We don't think Shaquille O'Neal, the seven foot two former basketball star, is more human and valuable than you and I simply because he's a foot bigger. What about your level of development? Yes, you were less developed. There's your L in that acronym. But since when does body development determine value? Two-year-old girls are less developed than 21-year-old young women. A two-year-old girl does not have a developed reproductive system yet. Is she less human and valuable than a 21-year-old who does? Uh, this is exactly, by the way, the line of reasoning Abraham Lincoln used when he would debate proponents of slavery. His, his opponents would say, Mr. Lincoln, that slave differs from us. And Lincoln would say, so does he differ from us in ways that justify enslaving him? And to quote Lincoln almost word for word, here's what Lincoln said. You say man A is white, man B is dark. Oh, it is skin color then, the fair-skinned man having the right to enslave the dark-skinned man. Take care by that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with skin fairer than your own. You say it's not skin color, it's a matter of intelligence. The white man, you allege, has superior intellect to the dark man. Take care yet again. By that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with an intellect superior to yours. And I think you can see what Lincoln's doing here. The very arguments that were used to justify enslaving the black man worked pretty well for a whole lot of people who were walking around with white skin. In the same way, as even one of our critics admits, Peter Singer, the very arguments that are used to disqualify the fetus as a human being work equally well for newborns. Newborns are not self-aware, neither is the fetus. And Singer's reply is you can kill both. Planned Parenthood wants to draw an arbitrary line and say, no, you can't kill the, the newborn, but you can kill the fetus because of its location. And Singer says that doesn't work. Size, level of development, environment, where you are has no bearing on who you are. When you walked from your your living room to the studio where you're recording this right now, you I'm going to guess you traveled maybe 70 feet. Mm -hmm. You didn't change who you were just because you changed 70 feet. If that's true, if a journey of 70 feet didn't change you from one kind of thing to another, how does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to a valuable human being we cannot? And the answer is, if you weren't already human and valuable, changing your address isn't going to get you there. Finally, degree of de dependency. Yeah, you depended on your mother for survival. And again, my answer is, so why does that matter? Um, there's a, a, a couple of girls, conjoined twins known as the Henschel twins. These two girls who are now 32 are joined literally at the hip. They share each other's circulatory systems. They share each other's uh, bodily organs. You cannot separate them without killing both of them. However, if it's true, the unborn can be killed because it depends on another human being. If dependency on a human being means you can be intentionally killed, neither one of those adult women has a right to life and we can kill both of them. So if you look at the differences, size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, none of those are good reasons for saying we could kill you then as an embryo, but not now. 
Now notice that argument did not cite scriptures. Rather, I used philosophy to show that the arguments used to disqualify the unborn are largely irrelevant to their status as valuable human beings. I tell you what, Scott, that that, uh, Abraham Lincoln example really resonates with me because it's always been my hope that someday we as a society would look upon abortion the same way we do on slavery. And that is, you know, what were we thinking? Uh, so I, I love that a lot. That's that's good stuff. So he was a master. When when you have these conversations, uh, I guess this is a twofold question. Have you ever gotten more emotional than you wanted? And and the second part is is what advice do you give to to us who we're all passionate about this? We all care a great deal. How do you keep it from getting emotional? One of the tactics I use is called narrating the debate. Let's say I lay out my syllogism and then I defend it with science showing the unborn are distinct living and whole human beings. And then I defend it philosophically using that slut acronym. And somebody just gets mad and calls me a name. Well, you're just a bigot who hates women. What I will do is call timeout. I will very casually and very calmly say, can I make an observation? Can I call timeout for just a minute and make an observation? I made a case for what I believe. And I really want to be committed to truth. So if I'm wrong, it's important to me that I hear what you have to say if you have a better argument than mine. And if you do, I'm going to agree to it because I want to pursue truth above anything else. But I noticed that you didn't refute my argument. You just called me a name. You called me a bigot and a hateful person. Well, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. But that doesn't help me understand where my argument went wrong. Can you please show me where my argument went wrong? Now, of course, they're totally Ill, Ill prepared to do that. But you've kind of put a label on what they're doing. They're trying to steamroll you rather than do the hard work of a refutation. I mean, people who are in any kind of relationship know this tactic. If you have the better part of a disagreement and you have the better case, your opponent is going to pound the table and do it loudly. So I hear you being assertive without being aggressive. Well, I might be aggressive. What I try not to be is abrasive. Mm. And I think you can be aggressive at pressing your argument and pressing people to show you where it goes wrong rather than merely calling you names. But I do think you can be aggressive in sticking to your argument the same way a snapping turtle would stick to its prey. It's not going to let it loose out of that powerful jaw. You know, I live in a town here where there's a there's a big university and uh, we have seen just how much free speech is is stifled on university campuses anymore. What advice? I mean, in addition to the great advice you've given us so far, uh, if we have students who are listening, who who want to have this conversation on campus, I got to be honest with you, Scott. And I I said this on a previous episode. If I was a pro-life student today, I don't know that I would have the courage to say anything because you talk about um, hassle and persecution. It could impact your grades. I mean, on and on oh, yeah. and on. What, what advice do, would you have for, for those young folks? Well, the first thing I would say to them is remind yourself about who we make movies about. Do we make movies about people who passively go along with the moment's tide? Or do we make movies about people who show death-defying uh, opposition to evil and bad ideas? We make movies about Churchill. We don't make movies about the woke professor at a local college who just mouths the platitudes of critical theory. I mean, 
There's nothing brave about that. In fact, the people we're up against are cowards. That's why they try to silence us rather than refute us. They don't have the arguments, so they try a tyrannical approach of shutting down. And critical theory has played a big role in this. The whole idea that arguments no longer count, all that matters is your standpoint. And so, for example, a woman who happens to be a, a black lesbian would be deemed having standpoint to talk about abortion, but you, a white male, would have no standpoint, regardless of how good your argument is. I think the way we fight this is we fight this at the intuitive level. We use those abortion pictures. In fact, some very effective pro-life groups are taking large abortion imagery presentations on campus, setting them up in the middle of the, the quads, and people are seeing the imagery of abortion. And they may forget the arguments. They won't forget those pictures. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most effective work we're doing right now, where we combine the imagery with powerful arguments. As we uh, wrap things up here, you, you referenced this earlier, and this is a question that uh, folks who listen on a regular basis will know that I bring up just because, you know, I'm a man. So as men, we're told we have no voice in this conversation. We don't have a uterus, so keep quiet. Um, what advice for men when they hear that? Argument? The first thing they ought to say is, how do you know I'm a man? How dare people presuppose that in today's woke gender neutral culture. How do you know I'm a man? That's quite a presumption. Maybe I identify as a woman. You know, I mean, all seriously, though, if no man can speak on abortion, Roe v. Wade should have been reversed 50 years ago because it was decided by nine men. Hmm. But beyond that, my argument, as we mentioned a moment ago, stands or falls on its merits, not the person making it. And this is something the cultural left refuses to recognize. An argument can be a good argument, even if the person making it is bad. For example, suppose I'm not really a pro-life advocate. I'm actually an abortion doctor. I'm not, but pretend I were. But once a week, just for the heck of it, just to live a, a, a disjointed life and the thrill of it, I pretend I'm a pro-life apologist and give pro-life apologetics presentations. Could my argument still be good even if my life nowhere matched my rhetoric? And the answer is yes, because my arguments stand or fall on their merits, not the person making them. And by the way, don't pro-life women use the same exact arguments as pro-life men? The answer is yes. Our critics need to be better than this. They need to do the hard work of refuting our arguments, not dismissing them with ad hominem attacks. The website is ProLifeTraining.com. If uh, people check it out and they want to have uh, someone from the Life Training Institute, what, what are some of the resources that they'll find there that's available, but not only in the website, but that you all offer to, to churches and, and group pro-life groups? We do pro-life apologetics presentations in Catholic and Protestant high schools, college campuses. Uh, my new book, The Case for Life, second edition, is coming out. It's 44% new material over the original edition and contains whole new sections on the worldviews behind the abortion debate. Who are the major thinkers? Who are the names you need to know? What are their arguments and how should you respond? It's, it's a hefty tome, but I'm excited for it to come out, and I think it'll benefit your listeners. And the tools, Scott, that you've given us today are so useful. Um, looking forward to the book. And again, if people want to check it out, ProLifeTraining.com is the website uh, yep. where they can learn more. Scott Klusendorf with the Life Training Institute. Thank you so much for joining us here on Dear Jane. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be with you. 
Is your marketing plan built to withstand the political, cultural, and spiritual battles you face in the post-row world? The Samaritan Summit exists to help you navigate these new challenges so your message isn't compromised and so you can reach as many abortion-determined women as possible. This year's summit will be in Nashville on September 19th through the 21st. Our workshops will help you confidently assemble your board and leadership team, help you welcome women into your center who are confused by deceptive communication from the abortion industry, and offer courage and support for the myriad new challenges you face after the Dobbs decision last year. Register today to secure your spot at this year's event at SamaritanSummit.org. On this edition of People You Should Know, we introduce you to Jennifer Patrick, the Director of Adoption for New Life Adoptions in Minnesota. Jennifer has been working in the field of adoptions for nearly 30 years. She says much has changed during that time. I would say the biggest misconception about adoption is that it looks the same as it did 30 or 40 years ago, and we know that it doesn't. Um, there's a lot of choices um, it, that an expectant parent can make within an adoption plan today from choosing the family to what the openness and contact could look like. Um, and again, technology has made adoption relationships just so much easier and accessible for the whole adoption constellation. So everyone that's touched by that adoption, as well as bringing together communities of birth parents, um, both during that process and, and after the fact, after the placement. And that's not all. Um, another myth is that all birth moms are young and first time parents. Um, over half the expectant parents considering adoption that we see at New Life Adoptions are already parenting one or more children. Jennifer says that when a woman becomes pregnant and chooses adoption, she has significant control over the type of arrangement that will be in place with the adoptive family. She's in the driver's seat at that point when she's making those decisions and can really decide, do I want a lot of contact? Do I want a lot of information? There's a lot of choices she has in making that decision, choosing the family, um, choosing what kind of contact she wants. And for some women, they want to be very involved in that planning. And for others, they would like um, the agency or maybe another trusted friend in their life to help them with that plan um, so that they don't they don't always have to make all of those decisions themselves. She says that when it comes to open adoptions, there are varying levels depending upon the preferences of all involved. Um, and it's not really an either or, it's more of a spectrum. Openness um, is often seen um, also as synonymous with contact, but really openness and adoption can um, be a, more of a spirit of openness as well when contact either isn't possible or it's not safe or it's just too difficult. Um, we in the adoption world, we talk about um, something called the extended family of adoption. So if you think of extended family adoption is much like that, where there's there's a connection and a relationship. Um, but just like your extended family, for some, they have a lot of contact and a lot of connection. And for others, they don't. But the the fact that you've connected because of that child and you all love that child um, that contact or that involvement can look different, um, both when they're making the plan for adoption and then also um, across that child's lifespan. Jennifer believes that it's important for people who are in contact with expectant mothers to understand the different kinds of adoption as they counsel the woman. If you're someone that's working at a pregnancy center, 
um, that it's really important to be aware of the myths about adoption and be ready to address these because this is really where the conversation about adoption with an expectant parent can either move forward or shut down. In the end, Jennifer encourages pregnant women to not rush their decisions. You have time, so use that time to really look into your options. Sometimes women say, well, I, you know, I need to make a decision by tomorrow or next week. That You still have time to look into options and get accurate information about adoption because, again, abortion isn't an undo button and it's final. And so knowing what, your, what the other options are is so valuable. My thanks again to Scott Klusendorf with the Life Training Institute. You might want to bookmark this episode and come back to it. Scott gave us some pretty strong tools for when we find ourselves in a conversation or debate about abortion. He reminded me that it's about the argument and not about who is making the argument. doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, a Christian or an atheist. Don't let the other side derail the debate by focusing on the messenger instead of the message. Thanks for listening. Dear Jane is a production of the Choose Life Coalition. Don't forget to tell your friends about us and like us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Dear Jane Podcast. Our producer is Kate Yule and our editor, Jacob McCormick. I'm Scott Baker. We'll talk to you next time.